0: All right, I am here today with Alex Epstein, author of Fossil Future. Uh, to uh, With me is Robin Hanson, uh, the author of such books as HVM and Elephant in the Brain. I'm Brian Kaplan. I'm the author of the Myth of Raths for Voter, Case <laughs> Against Education, Open Borders, other stuff. But today we're going to be talking about Alex's book, which is I just told people today, it's definitely the best book of 2022, I don't know if there's a book in 2021 that I would even think of comparing it to in quality, i huge fan, and so I wanted to get a chance to have a critical conversation. Uh, this is a book where I went around to especially my natural science friends like Robin, and I said, will you please read this book and tell me if there's anything wrong with it that I don't know about because I'm not a natural scientist. Uh, Anyway, so what's going to happen is we're going to have a conversation. I've got some questions. Robin's got some questions. We're going to trade off. Uh, Of course, Alex got some questions to push back on us. That's great, too. Uh, Overall, we're just going to have a freewheeling, hopefully hilarious and definitely enlightening conversation. (laughs) All right. So I'm just going to start off with my first question. I've got a trio on climate denialism. First question. Uh, climate activists routinely call their, uh, their critics climate change denialists. Uh, what share of critics, uh, for what share of critics is this label
1: literally true? It's a really interesting question. I've thought a lot about, like, when is the term denialist an appropriate term? Because, you know, the, the obvious association is Holocaust denial. Yes, yes. And, and my view used to be like, I don't like that term, but if anyone reads fossil future, they can see that I use it mm-hmm. for the anti-fossil fuel people. I, I particularly talk about fossil fuel benefit denial. And then what I call climate mastery denial. I think it, I think that it really captures something. So, so I mean, it obviously captures an element of you are denying something that there is very strong evidence for. But then also I think it's, it's that's something that something has to be very you know, very significant. I think it, it probably combines those two. And I mean, I don't think that, you know, man-made climate impact is on the level of the Holocaust. And and, this, and I don't think it's on the level of, I mean, my whole point is I don't think it's on the level of the benefits of fossil fuels. And I don't think it's on the level of the importance of climate masters. So it's not to me as unequivocal that you need like an idea like climate change denial. It's also it's but also you, a lot you, harder to you agree with the basic science that burning
0: carbon or releasing carbon dioxide warms the atmosphere and you agree. Yeah, climate yeah, yeah, climate yeah, climate definitely. Science. And
1: definitely. Think, but like, like think these two things are ironclad,
0: right? These things, you'll,
1: you'll, I you'll mean, mean, I think it's not, I don't, it, the thing is, it's uh, what I was about to get to is like, it's, it's a lot harder thing to kind of understand like the benefits of fossil fuels are pretty straightforward to understand. I mean, I, I think I add a lot to our clarity about them. But I mean, in terms of like the ability to use machines to produce value, to take a, a deficient and dangerous planet and make it an abundant and safe planet, I think it's, like, those are huge, huge uh, benefits. I mean, there are questions of, can you get those benefits from alternatives? And we can talk about that. And you know, our ability to master climate, like to take the naturally dangerous and dynamic climate and make it so safe that it feels like a stable place, which it's not at all. Mm-hmm. Like those are huge, huge things that, that you can really validate. I right, do right, believe right. you're like,
0: all, all fine but out of the people that are critics of climate alarmism what fraction literally say the, the you know, that releasing carbon dioxide does not warm the atmosphere
1: and the atmosphere is not warmed is that uh, 10, oh, 10, oh I would say very very few of the kind of intellectual if your question is like about the intellectuals mm-hmm. it's it's relatively few so it's 10%, most 20% what well I, Yeah, maybe 10% or something. I mean, you have people, there's a
0: very- What if we count journalists? Does that get us up to 30 or 40?
1: I mean, I think there's a share. Here's what I I think is, is maybe most relevant here. I think there's a share of people who will just say something like, we don't, like, we may not impact it at all, or if we impact it at all. And at least with my reading of the evidence, I think it's implausible that we impacted almost none. I would I would be open to arguments about that, but I don't know, maybe maybe 10 or 20 percent. And I think I think the more kind of not that whether you want to call it denial or not, but I think the non-interest in the science, that's more of a journalist than activist type. Like, like you could just say, like certain percentage of not to be mean, but like Republicans or conservatives, there's a certain lack of interest. In, in the science and in real scientific evidence. And I think that that's what's problematic. And sometimes one form in which you'll hear this that I think is very problematic is people will say something like, God wouldn't let us have that big an impact. Or I don't believe that humans, like, we, we, like it's arrogant to think we could have an impact. And I think you definitely cannot have that. I think you should be open to us having look, like you don't even have a clear idea of the impact absent knowing specifics about the history of the planet and where we are. Like I think you definitely need to be open to and interested in science about how we impact every aspect of the planet. And I think there's definitely a non-trivial percentage of of people who, who are not open to or interested in that science. And I think that's that's a problem.
0: All right now Wikipedia does call you a climate change denialist. The article- changes. I thought they changed. Great. I thought they- it was changed, I, somebody I, got changed back, and then, uh, you yeah, know, so, like, I was checking, but any, any, anyway, so I don't know what the current state is, but anyway, Wikimedia notwithstanding, I know you're not a climate change denialist, but what the hell are you, Alex,
1: Explo- classify yourself. Well, do you, I mean, I'm really, I'm an advocate of fossil fuels in this issue, and part of, I think one of the things I, I focus on is, you you have to, I mean, the issue of quote climate changes is primarily an issue of fossil fuels side effect of warming the global climate system. And so you need to think of it as a side effect and you need to think of that side effect. You need, a, you need to think of any positive side effects along with negatives. You need to think of them with precision. You can't just exaggerate or assume they're infinite or assume they're small for that matter, but then you have to couple that with the benefits of fossil fuels. So I think I'm a, a fossil fuel advocate because I think the benefits far outweigh the negative side effects in terms of climate. I mean, I think I'm a climate thinker. So I I try to think carefully about it as a side effect of fossil fuels. And then more broadly with climate, I'm sure we'll get into this, but I I think of any changes to it, I'm open to positive and negative man-made changes. And then I'm very obsessed with our ability to master climate, because I think that's demonstrably the most important thing uh, about any climate that we've had and then climate that we could potentially have in the near future.
0: Right now, you already touched on this a bit, but if you could just elaborate a little bit. So where do the literal climate change denialists actually go wrong and what can they learn from your book?
1: Well, so I don't use this, I don't love this terminology, but I, I think, what, what again, okay. if, if a, I put the it-
0: The literal change, climate change denialist says, it is not true that releasing carbon dioxide warms the planet, and it is not true that the planet has gotten any warmer. So those two things, let's just equals climate change denialism. What can these people learn from your book?
1: Well, I mean, they can, they can certainly get my summary of my reading why I think there is an impact and particularly the idea of, I think we do have an impact because I think you could, you could plausibly think like, I think it's more plausible to think, well, it actually hasn't gotten that much warmer. It's really hard to know the records on these things. I I don't believe this exactly, but it's hard. It's true. It's hard to know, like, it's hard to know the global temperature Uh, there's. Bad records for most of history. Uh, th- there's like a lot of things where, like, I believe we could Im- we could have a warming impact, and it could be like the temperature could be more stable. I think just like in the 70s, we were having a warming impact, but there were other things that were making it cooler. But I think like I think you should really believe that we're having a warming impact unless the basic idea of greenhouse gases is wrong, which to the evidence I have, I think it's it's right. So people can learn about just how the more greenhouse gases you have, sort of the more slowly uh, infrared escapes the earth and blah, 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 blah. I mean, you can read in chapter nine, but I think they can get some of that. But I think the other thing they can get, and I think this this will help a lot of people who are pro-freedom and who feel like if you quote believe in climate change that's a threat to freedom they can get the idea that if you think about this in a holistic way and you think about the benefits of fossil fuels including our ability to master climate you can believe that we have climate impacts including adverse ones and still believe that we should absolutely be free to use fossil fuels like a lot of people are drawn to the quote denial of things because they see the the people bringing attention to those things as a, as a threat to freedom. And I think this happened with COVID as well. I think there was a tendency to under, of course, people overestimated the threat, but I think some people underestimated the threat because they thought if this is a threat, then we there's no pro-freedom way to deal with it. And that, that's a different subject, but I think there was a pro-freedom way of dealing with that, even if it was two or three times the threat that it ended up
0: being. All
1: right, cool. Now I'll hand it over to
0: Robin, who's champing at the bit, if I can do my usual telepathy on him. Okay. <laughs> Hi Alex.
2: So I love hey. the, I love the overall theme. What I, okay. what I think I see often happening in cases like this is when you're being somewhat contrarian, the people on the other side are going to try to look for the cases where they think you go overboard, the, the ways that like, you you extend yourself maybe farther than you can really justify, and then they're going to focus on those as ways to dismiss you. They're going to say, "Look, he's kind of crazy or extreme on these particular things." So, do you think? By the way, do you th- I'm looking forward to your question. Do you think that's happened? Because there's, there's know, been but like but four I, critical I, I just, reviews other, of this book okay but but i'm going to try to help you with this in the sense that i'm going to try to help okay. clarify the things that people could accuse you of being a little too gotcha. extreme about <laughs> and i like help you like show that you're not as crazy extreme as they might think so okay that like triggers a lot of economists is that when you discuss externalities you seem to be reluctant to sort of admit the possibility of externality so i want to let you like admit that and like maybe accept the concept here. So in general, when you talk about like externalities, you you say things like, you know, it's good that we have research, it's good that we have consumer surplus, it's good that we have growth. And fossil fuels contributes to all all those things and you don't want to forget about those things and see that those are all really big benefits, right? Uh, That's all the benefit of just total production, total GDP, total growth. And then, you know, the economist might say, yes, and then all the inputs into growth are good, but some might be better than others in the sense that on the margin, some kinds of activities might have a negative effect. Maybe we should tax those relative to other ones, and then they might want to make that claim about fossil fuels. They might say, we should have a modest carbon tax, maybe because of global warming, or a modest tax on air pollution, Or things like that. So, like, take the concrete example of, say, traffic congestion, right? I presume you can accept that even though cars are good, and it's good that people can have cars to get around, if traffic congestion causes externalities, then we we want some sort of a tax on traffic, say, to reduce that, and that would be overall good, even though cars are good, right? Did you buy that part? Yeah. So
1: let's. So there's a lot of interesting things here. So let's. I, I I like talking about the pollute. So I'm glad we're talking about the pollution example first because I think there's there's differences of the CO2. Uh, so let's just yeah talk about this example. So yeah, I think there's a question when you have um, you know when, when you have what I would call just a form of endangerment from something, like how do you how do you deal with it? And there's kind of, you know, the classic thing that's kind of easy to deal with is you have like a single point source of it. So it's like, oh, you have a hog farm next to you and they moved in and you were there first and they just emit all sorts of stuff and it's choking your kids. And then you can say, okay well, I have I have cause to tell them not to do that there to somehow mitigate it. So there's that kind of thing. But then what you're bringing up is a little bit harder because it's an aggregate thing. It's right. We all a bunch of us are in the Los Angeles, uh, you know, we're in the valley and we love the automobile and we're excited. And when a few of us have an automobile, it's not a big problem. But then you get, because of the topography and because of the emissions, you know, you get all this smog and all things being equal, you don't want that. And so I think there's a question of how do you deal with that? Uh, but I think you, there is a point at which you need to deal with that. There, there's also a point at which you don't deal with that. So if you right. think about like inventing fire. This is a kind of classic example, like people invented fire. I don't think you should have that much in terms of restricting the smoke when people are just inventing fire and that's all they have. But as you become richer, you can set higher and higher thresholds for endangerment. And so I think the viewing it as something you tax is one way of doing it. I actually think often uh, a way to do it, a better way to do it is more of a, like a cap and trade type thing where you basically say, hey, given the state of technology economics, we have reason to believe that if we cap it at this level, the emissions will be reasonably preventable and it won't hurt people overall that much. So I think like I'm open to attacks in this kind of situation, but I don't know, the cap type thing makes more sense to me. But my main point is, is just you really need to think carefully about with a given side effect, is this what I call reasonably preventable? So can you to take the fire example, like can you minimize or lessen the smoke? without significantly lessening your ability to get the benefit of fire. And I think that this will vary from place to place. So for example, like in Los Angeles, there was more reason to cap things than in another place without the same topography and without the the same amount of um, uh, emissions. And in general, I think like, look, it's, one reason why there's a lot, you know, there's legitimate excitement around, around EVs is, is you don't have tailpipe emissions. I'm in Utah right now, snowboarding, and in Salt Lake City, they have temperature inversions sometimes, which are unpleasant because, like, all the stuff collects. And, like, ideally, over time, you would want to have things where you're not emitting as much. And so you just want to find really cost-effective ways to do that. And unfortunately, most of the people who say they're concerned about the emissions – do not think a lot about the benefits. And then sometimes the people, and I think you're saying there's this caricature, for me, the people who talk about the benefits aren't concerned about the emissions. I think you need rational ways to deal with both. And I think economists are generally good, but if we go to the CO2 issue, I don't think they nearly value enough value energy. And then I think they tend to take a catastrophist parrot, sometimes a catastrophist view of CO2. So it sounds like you are
2: accepting the idea that on the margin, pollution could be bad and, and then
1: deserve- Oh, of course. Yeah, I mean, that's an, I think it's an obvious- Right. It should be thing. weight against the benefits, but
2: on the benefits on the margin should be benefits of that particular activity on the margin, as opposed to just total economic growth. So uh, yes, it's good, well, it's good, but fossil fuels only are one contribution to total growth, so we might like- Tax fossil fuels in particular compared to other inputs if they happen to be corresponding to a particular bad externality.
1: Well, but but so this this gets to kind of what I think goes wrong and think the CO2 issue is more because with the CO2 issue you, what the the negatives are a little bit more global in nature. It's not just one thing. It's got it's like a bunch of different things. It's not just oh the congestion and, and the air quality. It's it's a whole bunch of different things that are the concern. And then I just think when, when you're thinking about, so with the CO2, one thing is you just need to think about, you need to think about any harms of the CO2 and then benefits of CO2. And, and I think it's even hard to show that the harms of CO2 outweigh the benefits, but, and then there's also, but I think like one thing, for example, people, and I talk about this in chapter four of the book, I think people tend to drastically underestimate positive externalities associated, I think they do that in general actually, but certainly with energy. And one of the main things energy does is it frees up human time. And so in general, the more energy use you have, the more freed up human time you have, and the more unexpected kinds of innovations you're going to have, including in things like medical care. And I talk about even just, so, so I think, I think just people tend to underestimate the positive externalities of energy and, and most environmental economists I've seen certainly fall into that. category. So, so this is the key technical point. Like, economy getting bigger overall
2: has positive externalities, like just activity in general, innovation in general, though, uh, those are mm-hmm. all have positive externalities. We happen to agree to that, but we might distinguish the size of them depending on the kind of input to that. So we might not say all inputs into, you know, have the same necessarily positive or negative externalities. We might say, well, <laughs> if fossil fuels has a bigger negative externality, say than a recreation or something, <laughs> Then we might want to tax it more, or have a bigger cap on it, more than other inputs to overall production.
1: Right, but I'm saying I'm saying it's positive externalities are in a totally different category than that. So, so that's that's what I'm saying is like the what and this is a whole kind of argument of particularly chapter four of my book. But it's just this is like the cost effectiveness of energy is fundamental to our ability to flourish, or if you want to put it like the livability. Of the planet, and so every time you make energy like a little bit cheaper, there are all these incredible positives that flow from that, including all of this innovation that you wouldn't otherwise have. And I don't see people taking that seriously in the same way. But you wouldn't say the same thing with other things. I think energy is a fundamental input. So, I mean, I don't it's, think it's it incredible. It's fungible with the a
0: little cheaper, I'd say incredible positives from it, from the fossil fuels existing. Whether the externalities having it a little bit cheaper or incredible seems to be something that's much harder to check. Um, in the whole book, really, like the few sentences that bothered me as economists, uh, I was looking for them. So here's one. Again, which, now there's a reasonable reading of this and there's not so reasonable reading of this. And, okay. and I think this is in the spirit of Robin's uh, claim. So, or, you know, concern. So this is page 388. Reasonably preventable, quote unquote, means that something can be prevented without doing greater damage for most or all people it seems innocuous enough. But then to an economist, uh, they would say, well, look, well, it could be that we could go and have 1% less. And that would be, a real, we, we, you know, by you know, cutting down emissions by 1%, we would have, that would be one where we get some, you know, some good gains to health with barely any loss. And so that's actually a good deal. And that's one that you cannot, you cannot really counter by saying, look, imagine how terrible the world would be about coal. This is one we're saying, well, imagine if we just had a little bit less coal. Right now, basically, there's sort of a it seems like there's a binary thinking go on where either binary thinking going on where either it is reasonably preventable or it's not reasonably preventable, and the question is, well, how much is reasonably preventable? And you could say, well, look, we could reasonably prevent five percent, or we could reasonably prevent or we reasonably prevent ten percent. We couldn't reasonably prevent fifty percent, and for economists, they're always focusing on, or we are always focusing on these marginal changes. Whereas non-economists tend to either think good, bad. Uh, Now, by the way, there's something else in your book that is very consistent with this. When you talk about Mm -hmm. threshold effects and you talk, you know, you have this old uh, line from Paracelsus, the poison is in the dosage. This is very much an, an economist way of thinking about things of saying, look, we shouldn't be asking, like, is cyanide bad or like is cyanide reasonably preventable? The question is, is this marginal amount of cyanide reasonably preventable? Um, we can't get rid of all the cyanide, but we can. Re- there can still be a way to turn down the dial a bit. And in terms of the innovation, it is worth pointing out that if there is actually a damage being caused by, say, air pollution, when you put a tax on it, you do incentivize a different kind of innovation, namely innovation to find ways providing energy that don't
1: cause the air pollution. What do you say about that, Alex? Um, remind- okay, there's a bunch of things. Remind me of the first quote because I want to say something yes. about that. Yeah. The first quote is one which is just ambiguous between. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. The reasonably bi- preventable. Yes. It's reasonably right. preventable.
0: Yeah. So like should we so, interpret this in a binary way or a continuous way?
1: No, 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 no. It's not in a binary, but but um so that's so I said I'm separating the CO2 issue because I don't mm-hmm. we, well, so, I mean I want to talk about it, but like in general I think we should be using more fossil fuels and i don't think we should be using less of them because of co2 whereas with the specific like you can say with specific like local air quality issues i think there are some cases where it's above the threshold and you should do something uh about it but so when i'm giving reasonably preventable it's and i talk about this it's primarily with these pollution issues mostly a local thing so it's it's not you're not looking at the globe in that context you're looking at okay for example in this area of utah what makes sense in terms of emissions policies So that we can have fewer, if we want them, like fewer of these unpleasant inversions, which you would want, without like overall compromising our ability to travel, which is crucial, our ability to operate snowblowers, which I've seen is crucial, or you know our industry. So you need to think about that locally, and I think you do engage in kind of marginal thinking about that, but more broadly, like my view is that most is that we have an unreasonably low amount of fossil fuel in the world like we should be the world should be using more the world
0: needs way right, more energy but also if is... we had zero taxes on any fossil fuels it would still be unreasonably low or then it's that then you think it'd be right, right or too high or what no, no no i'm saying i'm saying we have there's a global movement to restrict yeah, of course yeah we like we're all, we're, all, Which... we're, all, we're all against those people right this
1: is just basically no 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 but, uh, but i don't know what you Florida mean by we yeah, well, yeah, the three, but I don't know what you mean by "me," because the three, the, but no, but most economists, or yeah, at least most academics, are. But I think
0: it's important. Like, like imagine we start at no taxes, no regulation at all on fossil fuels. That's when Robin's question comes in, and to say, "Hey, well, maybe we want to turn the dial down a little bit." Well,
1: well but but see, you, you, you put it in terms of regulation. But I mean, I think you need you need things that protect people from legitimate instances of endangerment. So if you call, I mean, I would call that like protecting their rights from these things. So you need different ways of doing that. And I'm saying like, you know, having a cap is one way of doing it. You can think of taxes as another way of doing it. Again, I I tend to prefer something like a cap, but you can also have specifically like, hey, this industry cannot do this thing given that it's there are other cost effective ways of doing it. And again, that evolves over time. So in 400 years, when we have super cheap nuclear that can do everything, then you could legitimately say, hey, like you can't have a coal power plant in this way at least that's not really filtered because we have totally cost-effective ways of not doing it. But today we're not in that situation. Today we're in a situation where I believe it's, it's good for to be using more fossil fuels. So I just I think we already have a lot of unreasonably uh, unreasonable prevention of fossil fuel use right now. Right. And so, unreasonable prevention of alleged side effects so, that's so just, harming
2: people. I mean, this is the point, again, I think people might try to misread you on purpose in order to dismiss you. And so relative to a standard of the current levels of restriction on fossil fuels, we all could agree they should let up and there should be more fossil fuels. Relative Mm -hmm. to an imagined world where there are zero restrictions or zero regulations, and it's a free market and the market price determines how much fossil fuels should be used, in that world, you might accept a modest
1: reduction
2: in order to- Yes, but I
1: think of it in a more property rights-based way, but yeah, absolutely. Okay. If that's, yeah, 100%.
2: Anyway, that, that's the thing. I just wanted to be clear.
1: Okay, so, I got you. To I able to say, say
2: clearly to everybody, yes, of course, modest taxes or caps would be okay to deal with modest problems, but we're way past that now. <laughs> we're, we, we've got way more restrictions than that can make sense.
1: And I do think it's important when, when people talk about carbon taxes and this kind of thing. I think, Brian, I made this point to you when we were hanging out recently, but like, we have massive carbon taxes in the form of just incredible amounts of regulation Mm-hmm. and and restrictions. So people like often say, like, oh, well, if only we had a carbon tax. Like The current energy crisis is a massive carbon tax mm-hmm. uh, at the moment. So we're in a world that is incredibly hostile to fossil fuels and is making them far more expensive and scarce than they would otherwise be. And then that, that they would reasonably be.
2: Do you want to ask a couple more? No, no, your, yeah, uh, yeah I, 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 was,
0: I was writing it on your
1: question, oh, no, Robin. Robin.
2: Yeah. Okay, so I only had two questions. And the first one was about <laughs> the externality. So my second question is about sort of our key diagnosis of the question. So I think your diagnosis is correct, which is that many people basically are reluctant to have humans have an impact on nature and they want policy to push that. They may not be fully honest with themselves, but there are many people who are accepted as scientific experts by the public who are driven by an agenda to basically minimize human impact on nature. and that's I think we I think we can agree that's one of the key driving animations the sources of environmentalism and restrictions on fossil fuels so but my question is about how we can engage it so we could agree that some of the people are extreme and the median voter the typical person out there isn't as extreme as that but let me suggest that in fact most people do kind of want to treat nature as sacred it is one of the sacred parts of our world I tweeted a thing about how people who work in nature just are much happier. And I I think in general, most people want to be a little, so think of like, uh, you know, building on an Indian, you know, cemetery or something. (laughs) There's like some things in the world where people just want to back off. And if that's kind of sacred, they would rather on the margin, like stay away from it a bit. And I think that's a very common animating emotion in the world. And so then people can use that to justify restrictions, which may be way too big. But the key question is, how can we actually accommodate, if we should, <laughs> this widespread feeling that we should back off a bit about nature because it's sacred and we don't want to just treat it like anything else we're just using instrumentally. We want to treat it a little better than that. How, how, how can or should we treat it a little better than that?
0: Uh, can I ask you a question? Oh, sorry, can I just interrupt one thing? I, I just realized, yes. so I think when it's recording, you know, Robin and I are staying tiny the whole time and you are big the whole time. I'm just wondering whether we want to go and, huh, well, maybe not actually. Just, no, it's not doing that. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's not doing it. I think it records. Oh, 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 okay. Okay. All right. In that case, Chris, no, it's, just, it's just for your okay. purposes. Cause okay. you don't need to see yourself, but you yes. can put it ah, in the gallery. Or, okay. You've
2: hit self yeah. view. I think.
0: Ah, okay. So, uh, so I should do the exit full screen. No, you just leave it fine. It's still fine. Okay. Okay, we're, now now we're over there. So okay.
2: yeah, but it's recording both of us.
0: Okay, oh, all right, excellent. All right, so I, I just suddenly got paranoid about this. Okay, all right, uh, my, my 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 bad. So now, um go ahead. Yeah, well, they'll they'll cut this out. Don't worry. <laughs> okay,
1: so I wanted to say, but Robin, like, I'm curious. So the the concept of sacred seems to be one you're really interested in, and that like resonates with you as capturing this. So what? I guess why the focus on sacred as a concept versus just just valuable or very valuable. And then what else do you think falls in that category for people? Well, so
2: I've recently given a lot of thought to the concept of the sacred and trying to make sense of it as an economist, because it's not something economists usually think in terms of, but it does seem to matter a lot to the world. And it's often honestly in my way. (laughs) Uh, So I want to figure out how how to deal with it. But, you know, when I've done surveys of sacred, nature comes out near the top. And so I think it's especially relevant for nature that we in fact treat it something like sacred. Now, we're we're less trying to take the religious connotations here and just say there's a category of things that we have similar reactions to. We want to sort of set them apart, value them highly, make a clear distinction. We're reluctant to make sort of trade-offs between sacred and profane. We want to show how much we're dedicated to it. And so in many ways, I think people are comforted by the fact that they pay costs to do things for nature because it shows that you are willing to pay those costs. Mm-hmm. As a way to show that you really care, and that's a way people so
1: do like it. what about like what about a child's happiness? Is that like a you know child smiling? Is that sacred?
0: Was that in your survey? <laughs>
1: to some extent
2: certainly, you know family is sacred and love is sacred and friendship and uh, meaning in life and you know there are many other sacred things besides nature, and let mm-hmm. would say there are sometimes trade-offs. but I think one of the sort of myths of the sacred is in fact sacred things don't really conflict with each other so you don't really have to worry about these conflicts and often if you can show that two sacred things are in conflict that kind of makes people figure that one of them can't be a sacred and maybe reject it so like you know in our era marriage and love are both sacred but once we were convinced that marriage and love were in conflict then we sort of downgraded marriage compared to love and were more accepting of a divorce but uh, basically people are wanting to treat nature as maximally sacred and you have to convince them to, to downgrade it. So either you really push on, no, na- nature isn't so sacred, or you find a way to let them treat it as sacred in some way while still getting the benefits. Yeah.
1: So, so I would, I mean, maybe I, in my way of thinking, I'd think of it as like, you know, irreplaceable value is how people think of it. And I think it's true in a certain sense, but I think part of, part of what's going on is that people have, it, there's, there. I mean, I argue this in, in chapter three of, of Fossil Future in particular that the, what I call the anti impact movement, the anti human impact movement, is the movement that thinks that human impact on nature is intrinsically immoral. So it's something we shouldn't do. And in fact, we should strive to eliminate it, and also inevitably self destructive. So nature's going to punish us. Like they've really owned love of nature and love of our environment and i think actually they have no right to that at all because if you worship unimpacted nature you don't get to enjoy nature in the way most of us love enjoying nature you're just you're just a victim uh, of nature so i think it's more like we those who are pro-human need to own loving you know loving nature or loving the most beautiful parts of nature and having a beautiful world and i and i think that that is because there are certain aspects of it that are irreplaceable. I mean, in a certain and and this is a lot how I live my life. It's a very, like, if you look at how I spend my time and resources, it's a lot on engaging with the parts of nature that I enjoy the most, even just living in Laguna Beach, where most most people are considerably wealthier than I am, is just like, okay, I love going in the ocean. I love the sand. I love being outdoors. I work a lot outdoors. Even like my honeymoon is, you know, going to Africa, like, Seeing animals, seeing wildlife, and I think when you see like if you ever go to safari or you know the equivalent of that, you just see there's something about this that's irreplaceable, and you know you want you want this as part of your life. It's not the only thing, but it's it's a part of it. And so what I think is actually necessary is for the pro-human people to uh, make clear that they like they love you know the most beautiful and inspiring parts of nature, and that cost-effective energy is totally crucial to that. And I do think that one mistake I sometimes make is when I talk about human flourishing, I don't enough clarify the breadth of that. And that includes enjoying nature. Because I think the other side doesn't actually enjoy nature. I think they just hate the human part of nature. Not, not, not most people, but I think the leaders, and I think a lot of people get co-opted into it because they think, oh, if I want clean air and clean water, but also enjoying natural beauty in the outdoors, like I need to be against human impact. And I'm trying to say that's, that's the opposite. You need to embrace human flourishing and human impact to, in part because it gives you those, those values. I mean, I'm actually listening to
0: you you are trampling all over the sacred notion because you said, well, there's the most beautiful parts of nature. I like those. Yeah. And this is right, where the, the, the quasi-religious part of the environmentalism says, who are you to decide what are the most beautiful right. parts? Right. They're and all we need to decide. Right. And yet, especially when you have these numerous, very profound statements saying, look, you know, climate change does not move us from a safe climate to, an, to a dangerous climate. It moves us from one dangerous climate to a different dangerous climate. Every time you talk about have you really seen what it's actually like to live in nature without modern technology? It's terrible. That those right. words of someone that does not love nature in the sacred way, where I am not fit to judge you,
1: rather whatever you do is great. Oh, wonderful you know, nature! Right, right. But so you don't love unimpact nature like you love the outdoors, and we need better. And even you can say, like, I love non-human nature, but that's different than I love unimpacted nature. And the real goal of the modern environment well, I love but it all. It is unimpacted. That's the, that's the
0: crazy thing. It's all good, whatever, you know, whatever's so going on. Consider, <laughs>
2: Except us. Consider a religious analog. So as a Christian, you might say, I like Christmas because it's about presents and the baby, but I don't like Easter because it's about death and all of my responsibilities. I'm just going to pick the parts of Christianity that I happen to enjoy and dump the rest. Mm-hmm. And somebody might think, well, you're not really very Christian <laughs> if you're going to just right. pick out the parts that you enjoy. It's not about your enjoyment totally. It's about this other thing you're respecting. So similarly in nature, many people might say, you're saying you're going to preserve nature just so that you can personally enjoy it. And if no persons are enjoying it, you don't really care, it can go to hell. And they might think, well, you're not really Really mm. treating nature as
1: sacredly as they want. It. That's true, but I'm not. I'm not treating it as as a god. I mean, I'm not treating it in a religious way. I'm treating it in a like in a yes. humanistic way. Yes, yeah, so like this that is
0: understanding tr- disagreement between me and Robin. Where Robin tends to look at something like, say. Christian belief and how they like Christmas and Easter and they have all these other doctrines and he'll he'll, he's there saying look we can't like directly confront them on any of this stuff even though it's not true rather what we need to do is to figure out a way of engaging with them enough so they trust us and they aren't angry and they do their thing and we do our thing and they don't cause a lot of problems but we're not going to like directly look them in the eye and say and say look there are errors and they have to be corrected. Whereas I think I'm much more like Alex where I am very eager to go and in the nicest possible way say, look, these, the user mistaken. Christmas is fun. Let's keep here Christmas and the other stuff. It's, it's really wrong and causing a lot of harm. So let's just not believe it anymore. I mean, against Robin, I would say, look, we actually see that things that were sacred once just get, get desacralized and people stop caring about them very much. And I would read your book as, being a kind of Nietzschean, in that you're saying, look, yes, there is this widespread notion that uh, that we, we that it's wrong to impact nature, and I say unto you, verily, it is okay to impact
1: nature if it is for the benefit of humanity. Well, so yeah, but the- I, I guess I don't think I don't think that most people hold. This is a point I talk about in chapter 11 of the book. Like I don't think that the belief in the environmental religion, like which I will sometimes think of it that way, the anti-impact religion. Is I don't think it's nearly as sort of it, strong in people as belief in conventional religion. And I don't think most I mean, people I'd say really it's stronger view stronger
0: than conventional religion now. Yeah. I mean, I, so that, I well,
1: no, 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 no. But yes. but yeah. in a sense, it's 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 more widespread, but it's very diluted and 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 not in the sense of like sacred and worship. I mean, I think people Imagine may identify it's all, it's with that. I
0: say like all of this stuff is lip service. And this is a well, but no, no, but I think it's much more follow the rules of that. They don't really know environmentalists, doesn't want to follow the environmentalist rules. They but, want but to but the view, service.
1: But the view of like viewing unimpacted nature as a god that you need to sacrifice to and that you have no right to. This, I think that's actually something that that people, that I argue in chapter three, like that's something people have to be sort of duped into by equating that with clean air and clean water and enjoying wildlife. Because if you just said, hey, like I think unimpacted nature is perfect, human impact is uniquely bad. We should do as little as possible. We have no right to make a footprint. Yellowstone isn't good because we enjoy it. It's just it should just exist. And in fact you shouldn't visit it because that's impacting it in some way. Like people nobody really buys that. Which is why when the when the greens say it explicitly like I have some quotes to that effect of, you know, People are horrified by it, so I, I don't think I don't think most people believe it as sacred in the sense that the leaders do, which is part of the reason I think it's quite easy to change in a lot of people because you want to own the the pro-human parts of the way they're thinking about nature, including like yeah, I love enjoying um, you know wildlife and the outdoors and certain unimpacted things, but in general, we want to make the world a livable place for humans. We we want a pro-human relationship with the rest of nature. We don't want to sacrifice to the rest of nature. So, so if you take
2: the example of Christianity, there are many people who say that religion is just good for society. It makes us more peaceful, more generous. And you could say that's the, has tricked people into being Christian on the basis of that argument. That's just not true. That is, most people who are Christian, they aren't Christian on the basis of this argument that Christianity is good for the world. They're, they've just more fundamentally bought into a particular view of it being sacred and there's a side effect. So I'm not so sure that most people are believing that nature is sacred because they've been told that's good for the world. I think they more fundamentally just see nature as sacred. It's a more... But but
1: nature is a a vague term in the way it's used because it's often used as unimpacted nature versus just sort of the sum of all things in reality. So in terms of unimpacted nature as such is sacred, I don't think people. I I think a lot of people
2: do think that unimpacted nature is more sacred than impacted nature. So, but the key question here is, yes, can we find a way to make peace and compromise with people who see nature as more sacred? Or must we fight a war where we say, you know, you are just wrong and you must admit you're wrong and we're never going to stop fighting until you finally admit that. Well, well, but I I don't
1: compromise. I, I don't think in, but really, I think it's more like giving them a more a, a better overall perspective. Like the legitimate way in which you experience this quote, sacred is this is something amazing. Like you just think about wildlife as an interesting example. Cause so you can think of it as these are like I'm gonna go see mountain gorillas. Uh and yeah, you know, there's what a thousand of them in the wild in uh, Rwanda and Uganda. It's like part of it is you one at least my experience seeing this kind of thing is like almost like an irreplaceable artwork, you know, of evolution. It's this amazing thing. And there is something very special about it. And if it gets destroyed, you don't get it back. And so you can really think, wow, this is a really beautiful thing. I'd like to see this exist. And I think you can integrate that that's a very it's totally a pro-human thing to believe. Now you can believe it in an anti-human way, like we should all die, so that there can be more of these girls. But so I think it's more like integrating the love the the pro-human love of nature into a broader pro-human perspective i don't think of it as compromise and i don't think it has like with religion you know it has a, a faith element and so you can say well you can't compromise between faith and non-faith whereas here i don't think there's in nev- there's a faith element necessarily here,
0: here's where i think robin is coming from i think if you could convince robin that just by staring into this camera and saying look Radical environmentalism is false. Nature is not sacred. Like there's a lot of bad parts in nature. We should go and try to enjoy the good parts and stop thinking about it all being good because a lot of it's bad. If you could go and deliver that in a way that would actually convince most people, I think Robin would be totally in favor. But Robin has this idea that you can't really persuade people with this direct approach. And instead you need to basically... Pay some lip service to the say not to the nonsense they believe. I see. Or to sort of all in order to to trick them into doing something that's a good idea. No,
1: I, th- I think I think in this case, I think you could do the direct approach. Not to say that I've optimized it, but I I, I think you can. That's yeah. so here's that's my idea. I think.
2: I think you missed an opportunity in your book. Maybe I think you're gonna write another book. So here's a suggestion for another book. <laughs> okay, which is you talk about how, with fossil fuels, we can mitigate the harms of climate change and have better lives, but you didn't talk so much about how we could save nature more with fossil fuels. Take, make the more direct fossil fuels use better and yeah, more yeah. could protect the elephants, protect the yeah, rhinos, yeah. etc. cetera. Yeah, just gr- lay gr- that gr- out.
1: Gorilla incubators. We need yeah. gorilla incubators. <laughs> right? I think it's. I, I mean, I talk about it a little bit, but I do agree. Yeah, I think that is a, a flaw of my work that it doesn't. I, I would say that it doesn't capture fully my own personal perspective as much in terms of caring about those, those things. So I think, I think it, yeah, but yeah, I mean, you do have to recognize this is very much it's in part because I live in a wealthy country and I can have this kind of concerns. I think it's important to to make that point, but yeah, it is. I mean, for sure like fossil fuels and nuclear, I mean that, and the level of wealth and ability to make possible. Yeah. I mean, we can do incredible stuff in terms of making the world a more beautiful place and with these different, you know, guerrilla incubators, like, it, it just makes possible all of this opportunity. But we could, lay, we out, we could have.
2: lay out more of nature and put a line around it and have less impact on it if we use fossil fuels to be richer and more powerful to be able to do things like to build yeah, a but foot it's,
1: wall around the Amazon or something. that would takes a some right, right, of right, energy. But, well, but, it's, but I don't want So, so this isn't because you're, you're putting it in terms of less impact, but I think of it in terms of like you could have more life and more proliferation of life because... I think we should want to enjoy that and it's and also it's not just about
0: pandering, pandering to them despite right, the borders to, Well, to, but it's it's, it's not like about, it's
1: know, like them down. it's like we want to see the gorillas and these amazing animals and plants and whatever it's not just we want a bunch of land to be not touched by us there's a ton of that in the US that sucks that's very uninteresting and and I think we'd make you know it's kind of you think of it as a garden it's just the you can make The oceans are another example I talk about briefly, where just most of the oceans are dead and we could make the oceans a lot more productive and that would be great. So it's, and part of what's I talked about this once with Matt Ridley in in a podcast, he came on my podcast and I want to pursue this more, but I think a lot of what's beautiful about nature is just the process of nature, like the evolutionary process and other processes. And part of the reason I think I don't have this negative reaction toward, oh, what if we're changing the planet with CO2, I mean, part of it is there will be new and beautiful and cool things that emerge if you don't have this bias against humans. So I think it's, it's really about like loving the outdoors, you know, loving, and then there's certain aspects of nature that you love. Here's another framing that I think you might work that I
2: just don't see people using enough, which is the difference between say a garden and the wild. Like mm-hmm. you know, the, the environmentalists tend to like prioritize the wild over a garden and celebrate the wild and think of the garden as less. I think you could make the move of saying a garden is more. There's a sense in which a beautiful garden is to me more emotionally engaging, more beautiful than a wild, uh, exactly because we're choosing so many things to make it right and make it go well. And so if you painted me a picture of, say, Siberia and a hundred square mile garden we're going to create there because the world is more warm and we're going to make something that was just tundra into a beautiful garden, and that's the fossil future of using all of the fossil fuels and energy to be able to do, to make beautiful, wonderful gardens in the world or you know, seed the oceans and instead of having ocean deserts have full blooming middles of the ocean that we seed and then turn into the kind of sea life that we like. I think you might just get more emotional resonance. Yeah, I, I think it's a really positive good- Positive vision of gardens
1: as opposed to the wild. I agree. And I don't know if you guys have the book. Do you guys have the book with you? I don't have yeah, it with me. Yep, yep. Um, if you put it up, so one of the things was making that cover was a really interesting exercise because it's got this if you look at it, it's quite a green cover, right It's got a lot of life on the cover and one of the things I was trying to paint and, and it's actually hard to find images of this like the you know the, the synthesis or the harmony of of like human industry, but then also you know wildlife and all kinds of things. so I, I think this is really I do agree with you, Robin, I think there's a lot of unexplored opportunity here and I am going to continue to think about it. Cause I do think the way in which I personally think about it isn't fully, doesn't fully come across in my work yet. But I like, again, I have a, I think people, I like, I think the average person sort of undervalues the outdoors in a way that they would enjoy life more if they didn't. But, but so much of that kind of comes, it, it often gets packaged with like the Sierra club, like you hate changing things. So I think it's really like the human flourishing synthesis, but that really makes clear things like you want, you know, the earth, earth should be this amazing garden where all these things that we were lucky enough to inherit on the planet, like we can flourish with them.
0: Yeah, we have a quick question. Have you ever thought of doing a book that along the lines of Alex Epstein has glorious encounters with the most beautiful parts of nature and it's like a travelogue and like going <laughs> to like, you know, the most beautiful you know, beach in the world. This is what it's like going to right. meeting the mountain gorillas. I mean, and then the that, old the and the only way reason that way I was able to get to the gorillas was using fossil fuels for the following seven days, and then it's the a, a good disabled. idea. Yeah. Right. So I mean, you know, like it seems like you've got it. You know, you've
1: got this adventure lifestyle. So I think that'd be pretty cool. Uh, just I, I'm going to do something because, uh, uh, yeah, my honeymoon, which is coming up in June, I am uh, I have I have a big yeah. I mean, like it's all wildlife based, so I'm going to do some. I might do some footage. I I mostly thought of writing about it. Right. But I do think that is that is important. You know you occasionally get people who are kind of, who have a pro-human orientation. Maybe the most notable is Patrick Moore, who is you know, one of the co-founders of Greenpeace and a really interesting guy. And he's he's like this guy who can really look at nature and loves like loves human creations and loves non-human creations and doesn't see human creations as intrinsically bad nor does he see them as intrinsically infallible. And so he can see things like, hey, wait, here's how, like there's all these instances where human impacts have led to proliferations of life. Even like the bottom of an oil rig, like all the sea life that will aggregate there. And I think, I think that kind of perspective is very, very attractive. And we need more people with that
2: perspective. So I, I went on a 10-day African safari this summer. <laughs> Maybe. The, oh, wow, where? What know, part what, of what, it? Do, uh, Botswana, Namibia, um, uh, you know, places around there. And it was beautiful. But I, I could imagine a video travel log where you show things, but then you show the fossil fuel infrastructure. You saw the, the boat engine and the car truck engine, and you show the power plant and you know the materials they use and how that was all made in fossil fuels. So as you could show the most beautiful things about a safari or some sort of trip, and then really emphasize these are the fossil fuels that made that possible. And just play up the fossil fuels are helping nature they're not only helping us deal with nature in terms of deal with the the, you know hurricanes and terrible things but they're helping us be in nature helping us make nature into a garden uh this because as i think in your book you're being just too defensive in the sense that you're saying you know yeah nature's good but like flourishing is good and people should just have happy lives and so it comes across as nature versus human happy lives and doesn't come so much across as how fossil fuels help nature too. So if you're, if you're sacred about nature, you could say, you know, when there's a drought, all these animals die, except when humans come in with water trucks or whatever, <laughs> give them water and then nature does better, right?
1: I, I wouldn't say I'm sacred about So I'd say, I mean, I love certain aspects of non-human nature.
0: <laughs> all right. So now I'm going to give you some harder ball questions. Harder ball than before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 All right, now this, this one, it's, uh, it's tough, but uh, I think you're up to it. All right, so you spend a lot of time in, the, in in your book trying to convince readers that you are much more trustworthy than mainstream energy and environmental experts. What is the strongest case you can make for your superior credibility in three minutes? Starting now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I would just say, the, I think that the main thing is, I, I think I have certain... Uh, principles of thinking about this issue that are very hard to argue with, that if you observe most so-called experts on this issue, they they don't follow. So we can just think of three, um, which is so one is considering, you consider the benefits of fossil fuels along with the negative side effects. I think it's pretty clear, particularly right now when we have a global energy crisis, it's really a lack of fossil fuel crisis. That if you look at most of the commentary on fossil fuels, in the last 20 plus years, it really hasn't talked seriously about what the benefits are, including what's irreplaceable. For example, in the realm of agriculture, you know we have fossil fuels are the basis of modern agriculture that make it possible to feed 8 billion people. And then fossil fuel, particularly natural gas-based fertilizer, makes it possible to feed 8 billion people. And yet we have people who are so-called experts... Who talk about only negative effects of fossil fuels and agriculture, but not They're positive not
0: just people? But you, you would say almost all so-called energy and environment. Yeah, biology.
1: yeah, yeah, oh yeah, almost all. And, and you know, so, one yeah, example so I give. That's the first thing that puts you above them. You're better than okay. Right. Yeah. So just You're like, just like if them. you read chapter one, which you can read for free yeah. online, you'll see some yeah. examples. So right. chapter two is is most people talking about fossil fuels. Just about everyone does not factor in what I call the climate mastery benefits of fossil fuels. So the, the one of the main things we use fossil fuels for is to neutralize the massive amount of natural climate danger. And if you look at the effect of that is one one of the effects of that is we have a drastic decline in climate related disaster deaths due to things like fossil fuel irrigation and building sturdy buildings and storm warning systems and heating and cooling. So there's this incredible mastery ability. And yet even the leading experts like what's called the intergovernmental panel on climate change, they don't even talk about the decline in climate related disasters. And they don't seriously factor in mastery at all. We can talk, I know you wanna talk more about mastery. And then the third thing so, so is- we
0: that you discount them because they ignore the ways that we have actually made our environment so much better with fossil fuels. Well, but yeah, yeah. Yes. And so then we continue the to, and the and ability-, ability so we lose credibility points for
1: almost never talking about something super important. Second thing is super Yeah, you're important. right. This, this is a crucial variable in evaluating what to do about fossil fuels. You have to look at the benefits in general and then the climate master benefits in particular. And then with the side effects, I think you everyone should agree we need to be able to be even-handed and precise about them. So you need to look at both negative and positive, and then you need to not exaggerate and I, in one way or another, but, but really overstate things. And I think it's pretty clear that people only look at negatives significantly in terms of side effects. And yet we have there's a very significant greening side effect, which is overall very, clearly very positive. And then warming, most people... Do, Way more people die of cold than of heat and warming tends to occur more in colder places. And so anyway, the uh, there's huge benefits of CO2 rising, even if there are big negatives as well. And people don't talk seriously about that. So that that points out to a bias. And then there's this tendency to clearly exaggerate, like when Al Gore talks about you know 20 foot sea level rises and makes them seem imminent. Then you look at the actual sea level rise and you look at the actual literature, it says nothing like this. And there's example after example, but you can at least see that people don't look much at the benefits, they don't look much about the, at the climate mastery benefits, and they don't look much at the benefits of CO2, which show that there is a consistent bias against fossil fuels, and if someone has that kind of bias, why would you trust them? So are we to presume that they're just incompetent or oblivious or
2: conformist and self-censoring? What, what should we conclude about them relative to you, given that they're not talking about these things?
1: Well, this is this is sort of the the setup of Fossil Future. Is chapter one is called ignoring benefits, and chapter two is called catastrophizing side effects, which goes into actually there's a whole track record of people vastly overstating negative side effects to the point of predicting the world will get worse when it got much better in, in these different areas. Um, and, and of, so I think it's all that
0: when you get an expert on their narrow detailed thing, then they're much more reasonable. And furthermore, if you look at the executive summary of a government report versus reading the report, you get two totally different stories as well. Right? Yeah, those are,
1: those are, those are issues. So I think ultimately it, it depends who you're talking about. If you're talking about the people who should know better, I, you know, I point it to two things. I think one is the, the, a lot of the leaders just they don't measure good and bad in this in the way that I do and the way I think most people do in one way or another, which is how much does this benefit human life or what I call human flourishing? So people like people don't people who really value unimpacted nature over human life. They don't care that all of this energy use benefits humans and allows us to master climate because what they see is like human beings raping and pillaging unimpacted nature, which is the most important thing. So I don't think that's most people, but I think that's a lot of the leaders. And the other thing is there is this deep-seated thing I call the delicate nurturer assumption, which is the idea that nature exists in a delicate nurturing balance and human beings are what I call parasite polluters whose impact ruins it. I think this is why there's this expectation that our impact is always going to ruin things. Like it's going to cause catastrophic resource depletion, catastrophic pollution, catastrophic global cooling, catastrophic global warming. Like it's always the view that our impact is going to ruin things. And I think that has been pretty deep seated in the population, which is a lot of the reason why there's so much fear around climate. So I think that's, that's, I think that's what's causing it. But I think the most important thing is people are clearly, Ignoring the benefits of fossil fuels in very dangerous ways, including the leading so-called experts, and that's something that warrants attention. So that's why I begin fossil future that way to show there's something wrong with the people we are designated as expert designated as designating as experts. So one, we should look for other experts, but two, we should try to understand what's going on more deeply so we can find better experts. And I'd say for me, what's going on more deeply is I'm looking at this from a pro-human perspective, a pro-human flourishing perspective. Not this eliminate human impact perspective. And then also, I don't think of the earth as a delicate nurture. I think of it as wild potential, and hum- which means it's dynamic, deficient, and dangerous, and human beings are producer improvers who make it better. And that enables me to see, hey, we could be using fossil fuels, and overall, it makes the world way better for human life, which is, in fact, what has happened, and I think what we can expect uh, to happen.
0: All right, so we got some gen- a general story about why mainstream researchers are untrustworthy. Now let's hear some specific accusations about how they're untrustworthy. All right, so first question, you know, how much do mainstream energy researchers claim that solar and wind have improved over the last 30 years, and what is the real
1: story about how much solar and wind have improved over the last 30 years? Well, let me, let me say something first about, because you've said a couple of time, th- times things like energy and environmental experts, but one, one of the, my criticisms of the whole thinking about fossil fuels is the main experts, so-called, that are consulted or what are called environmental experts, which in practice, in energy means experts on the negative effects mm-hmm. of fossil fuels. Like it's not that common to talk about energy experts. And when they do bring in quote energy experts, it's a very, very small minority of people who often have very little credibility in the energy community, but who happen to support these anti-fossil fuel causes. Like somebody like Emery Lovins, is, uh, you know, he's been around since the 70s talking about this stuff. And he just has this horrific track record of being wrong about everything. He said things to the effect of, you know, having a, an abundant, clean, cheap source of energy is the worst thing that could happen to the world. So like the people who are desert, and there are a couple of other examples of this, but the people are like- Sure, sure. But there is a whole community of
0: people that I keep encountering who say- that, oh, That's Ryan, true, that's true. Solar's, gonna go, solar's going great now. wind's going great now. Right, but right, right. People are not- General, like you know, they're, they're, they barely even talk about nature it's all just about how you will not believe what progress we're making in that, minute, that's man. true let me tell you so yeah you're yeah, yeah, yeah. right okay then, that yeah, is... the, then there's the smarter version of those people and what are they saying exactly and then what's what's the truth okay so here's like uh, uh so like when you, you send me those or, or
1: sun bros so, you know think about so this so let me give you like here's here's a quote um like, let's take the International Renewable Energy Agency, like ARENA, which, so here's a quote like, the period 2010 to 2021 has witnessed a seismic improvement in the competitiveness of renewables. The global weighted average LCOE, so that's called levelized cost of energy, levelized cost of electricity, we'll go into that probably, of newly commissioned utility scale solar PV projects declined by 88% between 2010 and 2021, yeah. whilst that of offshore wind fell by 68%, concentrated solar power by 68%, offshore wind by 60%. So like this is the kind of claim you hear, right? These, yeah. these drastic things.
0: Right. is that, that this is the kind of thing
1: that you're talking about that, that's a pretty mainstream source yeah i mean well this particular this number of this 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 uh this term lcoe yes this is a mainstream thing so if you if you go to something kind of credible like our world in data they will have something comparable here showing the levelized cost of electricity for solar and wind going way down so yes that is like that is what you'll hear and The problem here is that levelized cost of electricity is a bizarre garbage metric that no credible person should ever use, at least incorporating solar and wind, and yet it is treated as a mainstream credible thing because I think there's this broader agenda of getting rid of fossil fuels. Because what it does, and it's very explicit if you look at the the description of the metric by Lazard, which is the main popularizer of this, they'll say specifically it does not include reliability-related considerations. And it doesn't include a lot of infrastructure so the real cost of solar and wind is if you're looking at it on its own it would be the cost to use solar panels and or wind turbines along with whatever battery and transmission line network were necessary to provide electricity. Like that would be the actual cost if you were to isolate the cost. Now there is nowhere in the world that remotely does this or tries to do this because the cost is so prohibitive that it is not even an attempt in anybody's pipeline. So if you try to, like you cannot isolate the cost of solar in a way that's fungible, say with natural gas or with nuclear, but particularly natural gas because like natural gas can support a whole grid on its own if you want to. It can support every megawatt hour on a grid, if it wants to. So you cannot do that with solar at all. At least nobody is trying because the cost is so prohibitive. What you could try to do is to say, well, if I want to use 20% solar, how much does that cost? But you really need to recognize that you can't get all your electricity from solar. But even there, what you have to do is you can't use levelized cost of electricity and ignore the reliability. You have to somehow factor in the backup costs. And that's what the people don't do. So they have these crazy numbers. And then people think, Oh, that's a real number? And then they think, well, we could use solar for everything. Whereas in fact, nobody is trying to use solar for everything because it's completely cost ineffective to the point of being just totally uninvestable. We're not gonna have solar powered planes. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the one solar powered plane, I think it's a hundred million dollars, and it got grounded at some point. I mean, but it would be right. The solar, I mean, what you would imagine probably with current prospective technology is it would be you would have solar powered grid and then you'd be producing the hydrogen with solar, and then you can make a hydrogen plane, which is not really as good as an oil-based plane, but you could plausibly do it. Uh, unlike, say, a battery plane, which you couldn't plausibly do at most sizes. But it's, it's just these, in reality, these are at best, like at best, solar and wind are kind of partial, in the most optimistic scenarios, they're like, part, they're, part, they're portions of the, the electricity mix of a grid. They are certainly not full-scale replacements for electricity, let alone other things. But all of these so-called experts are totally distorting this, and it's very, very dangerous because people have this idea that we can get rid of fossil fuels because allegedly solar and wind are cheaper, and they make these terrible decisions based on this total fallacy.
2: But just for the number, you you said solar is down 88% according to the bad number. According to your best number, it's down by what? 20%, 40%? 20% 40% well but but it's not i don't think
1: you can even intelligently say it, you need to be clear cuz it's not it's not most of its uses are not fungible so it's it's not like saying like with natural gas you can say hey here's, here's what natural gas prices were in 2019 and if you want to build a grid around that here's what it costs per kilowatt hour or megawatt hour you can't do that with solar so i don't know what the accounting is i mean i can say the pan- what i can say is in general they're right about like what happened to the panel costs, but not the system costs. I don't think we have good numbers on the system costs, but the important thing is there is no replacing most uses of fossil fuels with solar and wind uh, at anything that's being considered on the market. Yeah. I mean, to make this point, the countries that rely heavily upon
0: solar and wind have higher energy costs because they basically have two full systems, right? They have a
1: backup system that does the real work. Right. So you have to, you have to, um, but there are like, you can think of plausible cases where some amount of solar is good. So let's take something like using it in Dubai for air conditioning, right, to amplify, because you're going to have a strong correlation between when you need air conditioning and solar. Like There are plausible things like that. So my my view of how to solve this, I'm thinking a lot about this, and this isn't something I really had in Fossil future. But is I think what you really need is you need the grids to just be, have technology agnostic reliability standards. So I think the, the simplest thing is to basically say, hey, to submit electricity to the grid, you have to make it reliable. Like, And that, that can fit in one of these categories. But it has to be somewhat controllable. And then whatever you want to do in your own black box is fine. So if you want to con- combine solar and natural gas, that's great. If you want to do solar, gas, and batteries, that's great. If you think you can just do solar and batteries go to town. Nobody actually thinks they can do that at at a reasonable cost. But if you think that go to town, but you have to provide reliable electricity. I think if you make the generators provide reliable electricity, then we'll discover what the actual cost of solar is, or at least the cost of solar plus gas, which I think is the more plausible thing that you could cost out. So I'm not against solar, but I'm I'm against believing it can replace fossil fuels, and I'm against forcing it on people, and I'm against giving it Like totally unfair treatment on the grid, which is what it universally gets today, right? I mean, so like if there were no government
0: subsidies for solar, would it just would it even exist, or what's your story? Well, it would exist off grid. Mm -hmm. Um, So people would do it just like for their cabin, the remote cabin, or something.
1: Yeah, but you could you could um, plausibly like would this be
0: available on the market if it weren't for the subsidies?
1: Um. You could imagine, I mean, there's a lot of issues with just even where it's coming from because mostly coming from China, produced using coal, having labor standards we wouldn't have and this kind of thing. But yeah, I think, I mean, there's something attractive about solar in particular, but you would just, what you would want is a really sort of cheap way of cycling the controllable thing to go along with it. Like one, um, I don't know, I remember this, this guy who invented the Segway, Dean Kamen, I think that's his name. Like I saw him once he was pitching, I think he was using something called a Stirling engine with natural gas. And he's basically saying, hey, put solar panel. It's a really efficient engine that's pretty small. And so he said like, hey, put solar panels on your house and then use the Stirling engine. And I have a way of combining those two and you'll basically get off-grid electricity. But like that's plausible to me. So I, I'm very in favor of using it in a, in a truly competitive market. But what's happened is it's being used on the grid and it's being given this privilege where solar generators are allowed to sell unreliable electricity, and they actually get paid more than the people who provide reliable electricity. So that's a nightmare. And that there's all this fraudulent accounting. But if you made every generator to fly reliable electricity, then you'd get rid of all the fraud. And then then you could plausibly use solar. And I would I would be open to examples of it. And I don't want to close off examples of anything.
2: So I recall you're mentioning politicians making crazy promises about zero carbon and timescales that that's not feasible so mm-hmm. as we move toward that and they start to fail on the promises who will they blame it, c- can your side find a way to make it clear that they were wrong or will they cl- blame people not going far enough with them and you know blame your opposition as the cause why they're not making as much progress as
0: they not they just come up with some fake measure
1: according to which they succeeded <laughs> well, I think we're, we're currently experiencing this right now because what we have, and, and it's interesting to see the different interpretations, right? Because we have a global energy crisis, which is mainly a lack of fossil fuel crisis. That's why you saw oil prices go up, but in particularly you saw natural gas and coal prices go up in very, very destructive ways, like things like having fertilizer shortages because natural gas prices spike. And you're seeing huge demand for coal and the industry just making a fortune this year because prices have gone so far up. And my analysis of that is it's basically the anti-fossil fuel movement has succeeded marginally in suppressing fossil fuel investment, production, refining, transportation to the point where it's artificially restricted the supply. And the demand has not been replaced by solar and wind as was promised and predicted. And therefore like the, it's the anti-fossil fuel movement that's responsible. But I haven't seen one of those people take uh, responsibility, which is I have a couple of things, and I've I've done a bunch of research, which I need to publicize soon, of basically every renewable expert just making totally wrong predictions about the present. And I did a study, Did I checked, did any of them actually warn about the danger of restricting fossil fuels too quickly? And I haven't even found one who did, which is, that's a pretty remarkable thing, that none of them because what they'll say, what they'll often say is, oh, you, we should have done our thing more quickly, right? If only we had done our renewable scheme more quickly. But, but wait a second. If you're an expert, you should have seen that that was not happening. And you should have warned about, about getting rid of fossil fuels too quickly. So the notable thing is none of these guys who claim to know so much warned that we were getting rid of fossil fuels too quickly. So I think that shows that I don't think of most, I don't think of the Green energy experts, again, most energy experts are just not listened to. So the the small minority of so-called experts that we hear are very hand-picked as people who are part of the anti-fossil fuel movement. A lot of them don't have energy backgrounds. I mean, I don't either, I'm self-taught, but they're mostly people who were hostile to fossil fuels and concerned about climate change who decided to get into energy and talk about energy. I don't think they mostly really care about energy. I think that green energy is an excuse For getting rid of fossil fuels so it's it's a reassurance hey don't worry about all of these restrictions on fossil fuels because we're it's going to be replaced by something better so you're in a moment where you could crow maximally right (laughs) you
2: could have op-eds in top places saying hey everybody those people were just wrong they didn't you know fossil fuels are thing and this would be the best moment it would seem to be yeah i'm
1: working on it it's in the next couple months i also have a uh I actually, I won't say it because I might preempt you. But I'll, I'll tell you guys offline. I have a, mm-hmm. I have a project I'm particularly happy with that should be coming out in the next month, where it's specifically exposing these people. So these energy
0: experts that you say we don't hear about, who who are they? Are they work in industry? Or are they not really
1: talking yeah. about it at all? I mean, you think about sort of you get out of the the world of like academia. Like, what is what do most energy experts do? Like, they work in the energy industry. They're actually making forecasts, they're actually analyzing markets. So these are people who work in finance, who work at oil companies, uh, you know, oil and gas companies. So this, that's when I am interested in energy, like I talk to people who are actually in the world of energy. And, and a lot of those people are really, really smart. And there's a lot to learn from them. One one guy I'm a big fan of, um, which people can check out, not not to single him out really, but I've I've always enjoyed his work is a guy named Michael Lynch, who um I first interviewed him on my podcast in 2011, and back in 2011, actually, I found out about him through the New York Times. The New York Times published him, which I don't know that they would anymore. But he's been really right about peak oil, and in general, he's just somebody who's really interested in the, um, you know, in the cost effectiveness of energy, and is not hostile to anything, but is really, really just interested in what things are versus being a promoter of one thing or another. And a lot of a lot of people you hear are promoters, I think. Are there peak oil people claiming that current events vindicate everything they've been saying? Well, I think there will be. <laughs> yeah. And, and in general, what's happened is the peak oil movement. So, so you know, just so people know. So, the peak oil idea was the idea that you know, production would reach a peak and then we wouldn't be able to cost effectively produce oil past whatever it was, you know, whatever threshold it was in the past that we've long since passed. And then prices would skyrocket and we're so dependent on oil and civilization would collapse. This wasn't a crazy idea. I mean, the the, the ramifications of having like a huge undersupply of oil, like those are very negative. And so they've sort of always been right about like they're there. I sort of use their arguments, but for rapid restrictions of fossil fuels, they're just saying it's inherent in nature. And I don't think it's inherent in nature, but I do think it is it is. Somewhat inherent, or it's at least at high risk if you restrict the freedom to produce fossil fuels. So I think some of those things are starting to happen because we're artificially restricting the supply. And then the peak oil people say, yeah, well, it's nature, right? We just didn't have any more. But it is really scary. Like I'm much more scared in the direction of peak oil that, in that type of thing and that shortages because we are artificially restricting our ability to produce. And that includes explore if you look at, say, the the shale revolution, which really, I think, bailed out the world, so this is the oil and gas revolution that got initiated in the U.S. um, based on shale rock, like the ability to extract oil and gas from that, which was previously not economical to do at all, like that's something that wasn't really predicted by many people. And without that, the world would have a lot less oil and gas and prices would be a lot higher. But that was really the product of a huge amount of freedom, particularly the freedom in the U.S. to develop resources, uh, particularly in the subsurface. And there's so much more hostility now than there was back then. So if you think about where's the next oil innovation going to come from, it's a lot harder to imagine that happening. I mean, th- there's other things like we have a lot more technology and AI and stuff so that you can be optimistic there. But in general, it's scary to me that we are there's a bunch of things that are very strongly discouraging fossil fuel innovation. When we need a lot of it, and with oil and gas, you need a lot of it just to keep up the supply. Like the oil wells don't just produce, they decline. The peak oil, people are right about that. So you need to be finding and developing new wells. And so many of the so-called experts are not valuing this at all. And in fact, they're devaluing it. The International Energy Agency, for example, in 2021 advocated something saying that we should already be stopping new oil and gas development. They said this right before the energy crisis, mind you. But it's like really scary what these people are advocating and saying. So would you say that in the last 10 years, your case
2: has gotten stronger? That is, events have supported what you've seen and the evidence you've been able to collect is stronger and more persuasive now than 10 years ago. Uh, because I'm it-
1: more persuaded of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, no, no, that's important, though. That's important, though, because I, I talk about it in Fossil Future at the very beginning, like, I was I was not studying like there are a couple of years where I wasn't as in-depth studying energy as I was before or since those years. And I was I was hearing all of this stuff about well, climate is far worse than we thought and, and the renewables are really out competing. I was like, maybe, maybe, wow, maybe things are changing in a different direction. And I looked in and it's like all the same fallacies again, and we're safer from climate than ever. And these what renewables slash what I call unreliables are not really.
2: I As mean, you're saying, like this other person, uh, Michael Lynch that you like, he could get published 10 years ago, but he couldn't today. It looks like the perceived consensus has moved the other direction, even if the evidence has moved forward. you. That doesn't make me very optimistic for the next. Well, thing. no,
1: but well, I, I would be more optimistic than that one example would show, because I mean, that was it was specifically a piece about peak oil. So it's not like he was promoting something against climate catastrophism back then, I would say in general, I think the intellectual world is shifting more toward my position. And I think that's a function of at least two things. I think one is the energy crisis is a wake-up call for a lot of people. I think that even though there are these false interpretations where if only we had gotten away from fossil fuels more quickly, we wouldn't have these problems. I think people are saying, no, we really do need... like. There's something about fossil fuels that's hard to replace. That's why China is building more new coal plants than we have coal plants in the U.S. That's why Biden is begging to Venezuela and Saudi Arabia for more oil. Like, there's something special about fossil fuels. It's not as easy to replace as we thought. That's why Germany, which had been heralded as this huge success, is now going back to coal. Like, people are realizing that the anti-fossil fuel movement was exaggerating the ability to rapidly replace fossil fuels plus I think Do we, see we have much public
0: better opinion or is this sort of your sense of what's in the air
1: you know you're seeing this with um you can partly see this in the corporate world so like the the uh, you look at even 2020 compared to today you look at people like BlackRock and JP Morgan and stuff like they were way on the net zero everyone head that way like get rapidly and now they're A bunch of like people are starting to pull out of net zero alliances. There's you know Jamie Dimon is now going out of his way to constantly say like we need more oil and gas going forward. It's becoming a much more palatable view that we have. We need to use more oil and even Elon Musk, who's often a good bellwether of these things. I mean, he said like this goes against me, but we need to produce more oil and gas for the foreseeable future. So, and the other thing I think though is there are better arguments for fossil fuels that incorporate climate issues and climate science. And so there's mine and then Michael Schellenberger and Bjorn Lomborg and Steve Koonin. You're starting to see different people pick up on these. I mean, they've been publicized on Joe Rogan. Uh, Jordan Peterson has gotten really into it recently. So I think think you're seeing that the arguments have improved. And then there's this moment where the establishment has lost some credibility. Because whenever you have a crisis, the establishment comes into question. And it's why a big, to, to Robin's point earlier, I think this is the moment to really challenge the designated experts. And I'm doing that in, in various ways, but others who are interested should to join in that because whoever gets implicated and vindicated during a crisis, that has huge implications for the future. And I think it's really important for the right people to get implicated and the right people to get vindicated. And I have a paper trail of being right and they have a paper trail of being wrong. And so that it's important to expose that paper trail. All right, so I've got a statement I want to read and I want you to grade it. Okay. okay.
0: Okay. All right. So the thing that impressed me the most about Fossil Future is just how you t- how you teach readers to think about not just particular fears about climate change, but about all fears. I mean, like the main thing that has made it hard for me to deal with this issue is it's a hydra. You just keep hearing about additional complaints about fossil fuels. And each one is like, am I going to go and spend a month going investigating what's going on here? Like when, like either I do, and then I've given up a month of my life or I don't. And then it's like, who am I to speak about this, given that I haven't even bothered to put in the effort to do it. So anyway, here is, I'm going to state what I think I learned from fossil future. And then I want you to tell me if I got it right. All right, so okay. here's the statement. All right, think of this as my answer to the Alex Epstein final exam. And then you give me my grade. Oh. okay okay then we'll compare it with chat gpt yeah, yeah Yeah. sorry so saying humans will just adapt to climate change makes it sound like climate used to be fine humans messed it up and our plan is a hail mary pass i'll figure out for the first time how to survive in a dangerous climate uh the reality though is that climate was always extremely dangerous until recently when we made it fine with economic growth powered by fossil fuels and our plan is to meet climate change by fine-tuning tried and true strategies we can be confident this will work because to get where we are, we had to attain climate mastery, the ability to handle a wide range of climate dangers. All right. How did I do?
1: I'd give it an A. All right. I think it's, I think right, it's why, good. I mean, I, I know, think
0: not, it's- To uh, quote my kids, why not an A plus?
1: <laughs> well, I, I think I'd get an A plus. Uh, I think fossil <laughs> future is the A plus. Yeah. But uh, it, it's um. It, I think I, what I would really emphasize about this, above all, maybe, is the- the adapt makes it sound like climate used to be yeah. fine. And, and in general, the and then concept of doing it for that, the
0: first time. It's like, oh, well, right, right, we screwed up a perfectly- Valjic system. What
1: do we do? Adapt. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Right. The concept of adaptation, is a, it's a very broad concept. So you can use it as a broad concept, but you have to be very, very careful. And in part, because it's a, it's a concept we apply to both humans and the other animals, and humans are very, very different in our ability to manipulate or transform nature than the other animals. So usually it's, it's other animals have a background and then they make small changes to themselves or to like tiny parts of their environment to quote adapt. But we can transform the background in very substantial ways, in addition to making changes to ourselves and to our like smaller things that are more substantive. So you just take something like drought, like we can irrigate particularly if we have a lot of energy, like we can take water from where it is to a dry place and we can save millions of lives, whatever the cause of that drought. Or we know that millions of people used to die often in a given year due to drought. So you can't just think of it as, oh, what do we do if drought happens? So drought is constantly happening and we have this mastery ability. It's why it's really important to understand the history of climate, because once you see that we've dealt with this massive natural climate danger, then you think of it as, okay, well, if the climate danger changes one way or another, we'll be able to master that. And what you really would be on the lookout for is a total difference in kind in a change in the background. Uh, right. and
0: that, and but then you see hard that's hard to, because that's hard to to an incredibly wide range. I mean, it'd be one thing if we had yeah. only lived at the equator by, by the river for a million years and we and we said, well, we've adapted really well to this, but it like doesn't change that much. It's only one place on earth. But really, like, you know, I've got a friend who was just in the South Pole and he survived. (laughs) He came back perfectly fine. I mean, like like when you really realize that we we haven't just adapted to a few things, we've adapted to an incredible range of things. That's where the strong optimism comes from. It's not like it has to be outside of a range that we've seen, but we've seen
1: an incredible range. It's yeah, and it's that's why I think like mastery is is often the better concept. And and it's it's kind of even if you're thinking of something so so what i i talk about this in chapter 9 i think it's really important like the the plausible worries from climate changes from global ch- climate changes are really about like a disruptive rate of change given your current investments so you know you invested in this coastal infrastructure and then sea levels rise and like what's your mastery ability with that but even you need to recognize we have a lot of mastery ability of sea levels rising but it's really, and if you think of it like globally, it's really, it's becoming a more tropical planet is really the quote unquote threat. And you can think of, hey, are we becoming a more tropical planet in a way that's fast, that will be very disruptive, or is it going to be slower and less disruptive? But the idea that we're going to make the planet unlivable for the most adaptable slash mastering species ever, that should be very implausible, I think. So
2: I think a lot of A related feeling that people have that sacred that nature is sacred is that we shouldn't play god (laughs) right yes and so they have the sense that you know there's this large world and we should just be having a small impact because otherwise we're playing god right god has a big impact we should have a small impact so i think that feeds into sort of when people show like some parameter space and said well, we've been wandering in this part of the parameter space but now we're drifting out of the range we've been in so if they co2 levels or ocean ph levels or you know other sorts of parameters and that that's often very persuasive to many scientists to say we are moving out of a familiar range of parameters and we are doing that playing god basically and, and they they combine these two uncertainty on you know, the fear of just being out of the parameter you're familiar with and the fear that like mm-hmm. we are playing god now we are having a global impact and who are we to do that I mean, so the challenge then is to say, well, you know, this place outside of the parameter space isn't that different from in. We've already shown a great ability to adapt to a lot of different parameter spaces. That's the counter argument you have to bring up. But if you just focus on the particular parameter of pH or CO2 or something, then then people seem to have this persuasive thing. Look, we're we're having an unprecedented you know movement out of a familiar parameter space.
1: Yeah. Well, before we get into the parameter space, it's just you always need to be coupling. Like, the more you view the planet as wild potential versus this delicate nurture, including how naturally dangerous it is and how naturally deficient it is, like your fear is all about not, like, human beings not having this incredible mastery ability. Because you know that if we lack that mastery ability or lose that mastery ability, like, it's terrifying. And in particular, if you recognize, well, it's all artificially supported by fossil fuels today, and we have 8 billion people. Like, 500 million people couldn't exist well without mastery ability. Eight, Eight billion people, like we, it's a totally quote unquote artificial, unnatural thing. So I mean, like point number one is people need to be afraid. They need to recognize how bad unimpacted nature is, how much we've impacted it, and how much, how much benefit we derive from impacting it at this moment. So you need to recognize the benefit of all of that and the cost uh, of losing all of that. And that's why when when parents ask me what do I teach my kids and my kids are getting propaganda, I think the number one thing kids need to learn is how bad life was before we made a lot of impact, particularly via industrialization, mostly through fossil fuels, and then how good it is now. You should really fear unimpacted nature versus people fear impacting nature. And then within that context though, you should be open to, hey, is this particular impact problematic? And and that includes like is there something like, is this dealing with a fundamental aspect of life? And are we in unchanged territory? And you can look at something like CO2, and you can say, hey, look, it hasn't been this high in a while. But on the other hand, it used to be 10 times higher, and temperatures used to be way higher. And so maybe we don't want to go there overnight for various reasons, because it'd be very disruptive. But that would be different than let's say that CO2 had only been 300 parts per million through its entire history. And now we're at 420. Like, I think that would be rationally a more Assuming you had the same incomplete understanding of the the physics that we do today, like it's legitimate to say something is totally unprecedented and there's some fear around that. But you need to recognize the fear around losing the benefit that comes with it. And in this case, it's not true that it's totally unprecedented for the planet because it's, it's unprecedented for our species for some amount of time, but we're a mastering species. We could deal with any planet that has existed throughout this planet's history.
0: I mean, the irony of the playing God objection is it's probably at least in the United States your pious church-attending religious people who are least worried about fossil fuels.
1: Does that sound yeah, true? well, it's yeah, <laughs> it's interesting because because some religious people will use the playing God argument in in other contexts. Yes, yeah. But yeah, it, it is it is a kind of I mean, you have to recognize like if you let nature play God, that's really dangerous. That's a really dangerous state of affairs. Like human beings need to play God. Uh, because no one else is going to play God in a way that's really going to benefit us. I mean, that's why, you know, of course you had anesthesia opposed to playing God and all sorts of biotechnology and in vitro fertilization, even at different points. And so like human beings need to quote, play God in terms of using our intelligence to master nature, because otherwise life is not the garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. It's not a good place.
0: Yep. So there was another book that actually someone said it was, it was such a great book about climate change he actually bet me $500 that it would change my mind and make me, re- make me much more worried about climate change. Uh, the Climate Shock was the book, All right? So anyway, oh, yeah. um, I warned him and I said, look, I'm not that open-minded. It's very hard to change my mind. And he said, no, no, this book's so fantastic, it will. Uh, it didn't. And uh, people said, oh, you shouldn't have taken his money. And look, I warned him, it was fair. But anyway, um, the thing about the book is he's put a lot of emphasis on, look, probably it'll be fine, but there's this tail risk. Now, reading your book makes me really like, you know, reinforce this idea I've had many times before, which is there's so many tail risks. How about the tail risk of green fanatics take over policy and go and cut off fossil fuels when we don't have any yeast replacement and then they kill hundreds of millions of people? That's a tail risk. And it seems like there's something in people's minds, well, there's like a scientific tail risk where it's okay for us to go and say, we are taking it very seriously. But for a social or political tail risk, that's where they're saying, oh, no, this is just an excuse for an action. And to me, they're all on par with, there's all kinds of horrible scenarios you can imagine. But to go and dismiss this one, of the Greta's of the world managed to get the upper hand and
1: before we get stop
0: them, it's too late. What do you say about that?
1: Well, I, I would think of it as when you were saying like unlimited tail risks, or let's just say like unforeseen yes. risks that are hard to assign a lot of probability. And bad, to. And really bad tail risk has to be really bad. It's yeah, like some yeah small really bad. Of total disaster. but but the number one thing with every single one of those risks that you can imagine is that they are mitigated or neutralized or even reversed. The hot, to the extent that human beings are capable. Right. like you take asteroid, pandemic, like any given negative thing that can happen, the more capability humans have, the less of a problem they are. And even they can be a non-problem, even in we, some we cases. That,
0: that sounds good. Although when it's a horrible ideology with power, horrible well, ideology- Well, but that's, I put that in a different- Fossil fuels, no, worse, right? They so need, I put that in a different, okay, that's an
1: interesting thing. So I'm yes, putting so that no, in like, a different- like, no, like honestly, no Holocaust without fossil fuels, right? So, so let me, let me- Bring that up in a second, because I don't that I, I think it's a really interesting thing raised by you. But I think most people raising this are not raising like political yeah. Yeah, human yeah, choice. What I'm trying to ram down their throats is, wait, there's right, right. more risk than you would ever imagine. But let me let me counter. Let, let me counter that. And then you, your thing is newer to me in this context. I, I don't have as ready an answer to it. But um, yeah. So the more basically the more capability we have, the more any kind of broadly speaking environmental risk the more we can deal with it. I mean, that includes even things like extinction of a species they want to preserve. Like the more capability we have, the more we can transform nature, the more we can deal with all of these things. And my argument is, well, the more cost-effective energy is, the more we can use machines to transform nature, the more capability we have. So whether it's a climate risk or anything else, you want more capability. As we've, talk, we've been talking about climate mastery, but and we hope that increases. I mean, we hope that, you know, more parts of the world can be like California, and we want more disease mastery and other kinds of mastery. So it's just, it's really that with climate risk and other things, what we're going to want is more capability. And for the foreseeable future, that means continuing and expanding the use of fossil fuels until or unless something comparably cost-effective is available at scale. So I don't know how to address your your other point. I mean, the other point is, yeah, we need to fight against really bad, ideas and those are the real risk, right i mean that's the thing that actually yeah. kills a lot of people is bad anti-freedom ideas that's what you know, we should really I mean, be it's like i'm all
0: for nuclear power but you're a fool if you don't realize well like if it hadn't been discovered no one would be worrying about
1: nuclear war it's like but, yeah, but worrying about nuclear, I mean, war, nuclear has war has, has tended to be a safer world well but worrying about nu- the world worrying about nuclear war has been a safer <laughs> world than the world before uh so are, but yeah like we got pretty lucky don't you think well it's you know it, it, this is not my my field yeah, of expertise yeah, yeah. but in general with capability i mean the the real worry of legitimate worry about expanded capability is it it gives you an expanded ability to arm people yeah. i mean that that is true you can manipulate i mean this is a point that the great one of my favorite energy experts who who died in 1993 peter beckman He would talk about like whenever you have power, like there's the ability for that power to go out of control. So that's one thing. There's always the accident thing, which you can get better at dealing with over time. But then there's just the ability to use that power negatively. And that's, I mean, that's a legitimate thing to be concerned about, but you also need to be concerned about, I think, primarily not using that power because of all the the lost opportunity, which, you know. We should all be all want more opportunity, and then of course, we should think about a world where there's six billion people who just their world, if we lived in it, we would consider it something close to the apocalypse. So for them, foregone opportunity is really you know what we would consider tragic
2: mm-hmm. so we're running out of time, but I just wanted to make a last comment about the concept of mastery. So when you think of yourself having the mastery, it's empowering and it feels good and, and, and safe. If you think of, say, some hostile power having mastery, governments say they might be worried about how much power or mastery they have. And I also think there's a conflict between things being somewhat sacred and having mastery over them. If you think of other sacred things like art or love <laughs> or friendship, and you say, well, you know, we're going to solve love because we're going to have mastery over it. <laughs> we're going to have mastery over God. Or, you know, again, there's, it's, it's somewhat awkward to, you have to have a certain sort of a, a sort of an arrogance really or a confidence where you say I am the master of my fate and we rule the world and we make our choices and yes all the important things we want mastery over it it takes a certain sort of hubris really to to be which I'm going to endorse but you can see how many people are uncomfortable with it which is pro hubris (laughs) right but but it is a, a perceived hubris when you take you know, think of social media. We're going to solve social media by having mastery over it. <laughs> well, okay. Or like democracy has problems. We're going to fix democracy with mastery over democracy, right? W- when democracy is sacred, and you say we're going to master it, you you
1: know, it's kind of, re- it's, it's it feels a little dangerous, right? And I think. People- do you have a better? I'm curious. Do you have a better term? I'm open to. I can see some of those issues. I, I'm curious if you have a better term when we're talking about, say, climate.
2: Right. Uh, wisdom
1: perhaps
2: (laughs) we will we will be wiser regarding such things and i think it's less objectionable to be wise regarding important things and mature
0: yeah and but that sounds like capable. someone capable <laughs> yeah that wisdom thing sounds like someone who's going to screw us robin <laughs> okay but mastery is a little stronger too it sounds like someone's going to take away my air conditioner I don't, yeah, like I, I don't have a good answer
2: here but i, I want to point out like there there is a set of like conflicts in the, in the emotional resonance of these things to, to be thinking
1: about. in general i think one thing that's emerging at least to me from your comments robin is it's this is something i've thought about is just like pro-human environmental philosophy is not fully developed. And I, I, like, there's often where I don't feel like we, I've tried to improve the concepts, but I don't always feel like we, they're, they're quite all developed yet for how to do that. Uh, so hopefully in the next 10 years, I'll work them all out. But there, there's, because you really want to capture, you know, it's not about believing in sacred things or compromising appeal, but it's just about really capturing what is a, a humanistic way of, of viewing Earth, uh, you know, as a human environment, and so how do you like how do you yeah. really enjoy the most but beautiful parts of it, how do you enjoy water. You're
2: gonna get a lot of people going on the anti human side. <laughs> a lot of your intuitive rejections will be the anti human. Humans aren't so great, they don't want they, they like nature better than humans, right? But if you can say that if we have more capacity to respect and preserve nature, then we will do a better job of it. Uh, those of us who have that as a priority,
1: well, respect, I, I don't like respect,
2: but they do that. And then now the question is. <laughs> can we compromise with them in order to say you want to respect neighbor nature maybe we don't but we respect your wanting to respect it we're going to empower you and don't you see that if you use more fossil fuels you will be more empowered to respect nature the way you want to
1: i don't think i think in this i mean my like i'm my main interest kind of on a certain level is I'm really very interested in intellectual persuasion, which I would define as how to persuade people of true ideas that they expect to disagree with. So I like, I'm kind of always interested in how do I, how do I get what I think is the truth across? And other people will have their own compromised versions of that and that's totally fine. But I, I do think that at least on these kinds of issues, there's, there's a significant probably mass audience for truly seeing reality on this issue.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, so... One of the things that I got out of your book is it made me optimistic that if you could just go and get you in front of America, that you could act, you know, that you could actually go and win. You know, like there's just a, there's enough things that you say that do not require a lot of preconditions. They don't need to accept a big philosophy. You just immediately speak to common sense, and it's and it's really just a matter of you're not on TV and the people, the gatekeepers, don't want you there. But it was one. Where it's, starting change, yeah. it's starting
1: to change, though. Yeah, starting to change. I mean, I like. You know, I hope so. Uh, but- I mean, it is, If you look at so, part of you know, like, like I mean, I I have the data on myself at least. Yeah, yeah. yeah and i
0: just like you, you, you look, we can multiply Alex by tenfold, and it still is a drop in the bucket compared to all the stuff that's happening. And that's the. Problem. I don't.
1: I don't know about that. I mean, is it really though? Because if you start to. Influence you know, like, look, I, I
0: wish it was otherwise, but if you do like the minutes of time that environmentalists are getting on TV versus the minutes of time you're getting on TV on major networks. And not just TV in yeah. high school classrooms. Yes, yes.
2: I mean, you know, the Education talk, 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 talk,
1: talk is the most. Birthday, you know, yeah. the education is the most pessimistic thing. I mean, this is part of why I'm very, you know, like me being on TV is something I think is Useful, but my main focus is uh, is creating resources that are really easy to share. So, fossil future is the most extensive, but I also have this website, energytalkingpoints.com, and there's a newsletter people can subscribe to. And one of the goals of that is just to give everyone free access to the best, most concise ways of explaining any issue. So, if you go to energytalkingpoints.com, you can search almost any issue, and I think you can see something really persuasive. So, I'm um, it's a common It's like really, it's 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 me spreading the tools to a lot of other people. And that's partially why like, I just sent Brian a bunch of books to give to people at GMU. And I love sending people signed books. And, and you know, I, I do think the resources are good enough where if enough smart people get their hands on them, it'll make a, it'll make a real difference.
0: All right. We're, almost, we're practically out of time. We're going down to the wire, but I got one last fun question and then we'll let you sign off however you want. Right. Uh, okay. So I've gone around proselytizing, trying to get people that would not normally read your book to read your book, especially if they know a lot of natural science. And a reaction that I got from some of them is they say, look, I would gladly read nuclear future, but I'm not going to read fossil future. Right. What would you say to change their
1: minds? I mean, if that's their view, they really need to read fossil future. <laughs> no, I'm taking that to you, not to them. That yeah. wouldn't change. It's a it
0: 22. Like, like the, you know, look, this person is not your typical critic, right? person who says i'd love to read nuclear future i'm not going to read fossil future this is not the main person that you argue against the book so this is like you've got right. you got i you would love them person, to read it but you but on the other hand they're not going to open the book until you go and
1: say some words that will get them interested so well what do you say to this so, person? so i don't know that i have the optimal answer but here's one thing i say when, if people are clear, like I think it's important to note, uh, it's hard to find a bigger advocate of nuclear than I am. And one of my a big focus of my time is is working with elected officials on what I call a nuclear decriminalization policy, so that we can we can reach the untapped potential of nuclear as soon as possible. So if people know, like this is a huge nuclear advocate. In terms of fundamentals, he finds nuclear more exciting than fossil fuels, and yet still he's focused on he re- chose to write the moral case for fossil fuels, and then instead of doing a nuclear book moral case for nuclear, he decided to basically just redo the whole thing way better and be fossil future. And and the reason I just tell them sincerely is I am very excited about nuclear's potential. But I think that, you know, for the next 30, 40, 50 years, so for me, for my, my future kids, for everyone I care about, for people around the world, like by far the most important thing in energy that will impact their lives is what we do about fossil fuels, because there is no real scenario at all, in which we rapidly replace our needed fossil fuel with nuclear in the next few decades, and there, and I could give that argument, but um, nuclear is declining in much of the world. So I just think the fate of the world really depends on fossil fuels, and we are currently trying to eliminate them essentially in the next 27 years, and most of the leading thinkers have been advocating this in one way or another. So I just think there's an existential threat, but also an opportunity uh, involved in how we think about this issue and I just think that like it's it's great to be excited about future technology but if you have the technology that makes your world possible that needs to grow and people are trying to eliminate it like that is the most existential thing so that's why as the world's biggest nuclear advocate, I still focus most of my time persuading people to think differently about fossil fuels and I hope they'll let me send them a signed book
2: I might say you should write a book called Nuclear Future, and the first half should be about fossil future.
1: <laughs> you say, well, we and I'm writing nuclear a pro future unless we do this first. That that's for sure. I mean, and I am kind of my next planned book is about energy freedom, and a big part of it is nuclear decriminalization. My basic view with nuclear is that the number one thing we're lacking is the right policy, and I, I think most people who are pro-nuclear have no good policy ideas, and they have at most they have criticisms it's like it's. That that's part of why that like I'm trying to create the political infrastructure, including the ideas, to make that happen. But until that happens, like if you think the current world's enthusiasm in policy or nuclear is gonna lead to a bunch of rapid innovations, I, I don't see any evidence of that. I mean, you look at like people will talk about small modular reactors, like those don't even exist yet on the market. And people are like, oh, let's just replace fossil fuels. They don't even exist. And they keep getting delayed. Like we really need. The policy where we can have rapid innovation uh, and, dare I say, proliferation in (laughs) nuclear energy. Dare you say.
0: All right. Well, I'm Brian Kaplan. This is Robin Hanson. We have been talking with Alex Epstein, and
1: I'll give you the last word, Alex. Well, I'll just say uh, thanks to both of you, uh, maybe especially thanks to Brian, just because he's been so public about this. I mean, he took the time to read my first major book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and give his honest opinion, which was fortunately very positive. And then he did it again for fossil future, even though he thought it would basically be the same as the moral case for fossil fuels. And like so I said, "I have uh, a just terrible say, habit of underestimating you, Alex. I have no excuse. Sorry." Uh, so I, uh, but no, I, I, I really appreciate that. I'd say one thing I appreciate about you, particular Brian, not as, as against Robin. I just know Brian well in this respect. <laughs> oh, is I, I, I like, I like that you. Um, I like that you have your own standards for things and I like that you're very critical of things that you don't like. And I like that you're very enthusiastic about things that you do like, and I'm happy that you like fossil future. And I hope that that viewers check it out, but at the very least check out my website, energytalkingpoints.com because that you'll get distilled versions of everything. And I think that more than anything is the thing I'm trying to create to create an army of me uh, who can spread the truth about this and make the world a lot better as a result, so. That's it. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Alex. All right, signing off.